Hey, welcome every, everyone. Um, uh, for those of you not in this session uh, five minutes ago, my name is John Kingsbury. I'm uh, Programme Director for the Digital R&D Fund uh, at Nesta. Um, and the second stream today in here is about education and learning. Um, and um, as with the previous session, it's, it's very informal. Um, we've, we're kind of recognising um, not that these three speakers are necessarily world experts, although actually I know that they've got some fantastic insights to share, but actually really I'm, all I'm going to do is ask them to speak for five minutes. Here is my big watch to make sure that we get to lunch on time um, and to use those five minutes as a prompt uh, really for you to do a little bit of work yourselves and then share with everyone your own experiences and insights as well as giving um, the speakers uh, um, as well as opportunities to ask the speakers some questions. We're very much hoping that this session will kick off discussions around education and learning rather than be definitive uh, around them and that, that over lunch you'll be able to um, kind of continue your, your conversations either with speakers or, or amongst yourselves. Um, so the format's really simple. I, I've, I've got um, as speakers, Anra Kennedy, who's Content and Partnerships Director at Culture24, uh, Professor Andrew Byrne at DARE Digital Arts Research and Education University of London, and Shana Jackson, who's the Tate Kids Editor, Tate Media. So um, actually, who wants to go first? Sure, yeah, great. I'm okay. Bigger, um, and some, some of our speakers are going to sit and some are going to stand, and so um, it's up to you, really. Yeah. I might stand. Let's do it. Hi, everybody. So I'm Shana Jackson, and um, I'm the editor of Take Kids. Um, I'm here to share with you five things that I've learned since I've been doing this job. Um, some, some things for consideration, a bit of practical advice. I hope they're useful to you. So Take Kids, if you don't know what it is, is an online destination for children aged 5 to 12, um, where they can predominantly play with art, create art, share art, and talk about art with other children. Um, I started five years ago, and I launched the site in July 2008. Uh, Take Kids technically existed before this, um, but it was a, a bit of an incoherent range of activities, and it was on the learning section of the website and had learning in the URL. So it was quite an off-putting destination for a lot of the children. Um, so, you know, it was a, not being harsh, but it was a bit like where digital content went to die. So uh, that site was getting around 200 hits a day uh, with kids spending around a minute. Today, Take Kids gets around 3,000 unique visitors um, who spend around five minutes. It's been pretty successful, and we've won some awards in the cultural sector. We've also won some awards, like we've, um, we've had BAFTA nominations, and we've won Webby's and South by Southwest nominations. So um, we're, we're really quite happy with it. So here are some things that I've learned and might be useful for you who are doing projects with small budgets. So point one, know your audience. Once you've defined your audience, focus on them and keep them in mind at all times. I know that seems an obvious and trite thing to say, but it's very easy to forget this, especially when your project's got a million and one stakeholders, which they all tend to do. Get an understanding of who your audience is, their age, what they expect from content, uh, what they expect from your brand and your property, your institution, what conventions they expect from the content, if it's a game or an interactive film or a film. 
and keep them in mind when you're making your content. User test, user test, user test. Um, I don't do this enough because there isn't, my excuse is there isn't enough time or budget, but you need to find both and do it. Um, it's inevitable that uh, the finished content, and I say finished, but digital projects never ever seem finished, really. Um, it's that, that's something you have to get used to, but they can be very different from the starting point where you started, but that's fine. As long as you keep your audience in mind at all times, you're doing the right thing. Um, and a key point on your audience, for me, it's imperative not to patronize them at all. Kids are very, very media literate and savvier than you might actually give them credit for. So in practice, this means avoiding any slang, using uh, cool emoticons, too many exclamation marks, you look desperate, don't do it, no comic sans, no primary colours, don't throw stars all over it, just rein yourself in. Because it's feeble, you know it and they know it and they'll judge you, so just step away. So the second point two is know your brand, know your institution. Um, you know, what kind of brand are you? What are your values? How can they inform some content that you make? Uh, you know, your positioning really does inform this. At Tate, we are, we, our, our brand values invite people to look again and think again. And we're also seen as kind of cool, so we can use that to our advantage. Be a bit fun, irreverent, iconoclastic. But that doesn't mean that you can't also create cool stuff for your institution if you're a bit more traditional. Use that to your advantage. Collaboration, which I guess is really important for today. Uh, your brand might be, your brand or your institution might be world famous and your content might not get to the audience. Your brand might be tiny and your content might not get to the audience. So the way you have to do this is collaborate. That doesn't mean just funding, that means finding people where your audience are. So in the early days of Take Kids, I teamed up with Moshi Monsters who are uh, a, a virtual world for kids. Um, and we did some partnerships. I also t uh, did a project with uh, the Royal Ballet School, uh, which BT paid for. So we just ask the questions. I know sometimes it might be a bit daunting, but use, it, use your institution to your advantage and find some kids to play with. That <laughs> came, out, came out a bit strange. Um, uh, I will pressurise you a little bit more. You've got two or three minutes? I've got two to three minutes, okay. okay. Three minutes for your three remaining. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> um, in terms of agencies, okay, when you're working with an agency, let them work with you and not for you. And this means true collaboration. Sometimes when you're a client, that power can go to your head. Don't let that happen. Your strengths lie in the knowledge of your institution and your assets and your collections. Their strength is in, in, uh, in the creative and technical, technological development of your inter interactivity. So they probably have more experience in creating games and toys than you do. So do listen to their suggestions. To this end, when I'm creating a brief, I keep it really quite loose. Give an outline and let the agency color that in. Give them some breathing room to do what they do best. So, um, yeah, external partnerships. They can be difficult, but they can be brilliant. Point three, I think this is point three, games and toys. So the most popular section on Take Kids uh, is of course the games. And in fact, the games section is one of the places where people spend most of their time on the entire uh, Take website. I love games and toys. And just to, uh, 
just to give you a definition of both, games have rules and toys don't. And they're, most, they're only about play. So three quarters of my annual budget tends to go into games. And I acquired uh, quite a bit of funding from the Wellcome Trust in 2011 to create games uh, called Wondermind that tied art and science together. And this enabled me to, to uh, create something quite rich and uh, outside of what I would normally commission and produce for Tate. Uh, games are a really wonderful tool to engage children and adults, but don't be tricked into thinking they are the only tool for you. They are a gateway, a beginning, the front line of engagement into deeper content, but when created well can be works of art within themselves. If you're considering games, think about what's doable on your budget. Don't be, over, don't be too overambitious um, and try to create a console type, if first person shoot them up, put on a budget of five grand because it's not going to happen and it's going to be crap. So do the best you can with what you've got. And if you're interested in commissioning games, play lots of games yourself. Find out you know, what, what kind of game mechanics you like and how you might want to apply those to your collections. Um, and you know, think about what you're trying to communicate with, with this and keep that and your audience and your institution in mind at all times. And a lot of institutions create games as learning objects, and that's cool, but do try to make the learning intrinsic into the mechanic of the game so the learner or the user learns the objective by discovery and stealth rather than preloading the game with learning objectives because that just really shifts the, the focus of the game and suddenly it becomes, hey, I'm playing the game, to suddenly, oh my God, I'm doing some learning and this is a chore. So, uh, yeah. Point four. Yeah, now. Okay, yeah, communities. A short note on building communities. To paraphrase that film from the 80s, Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. And then, then what? If you're going to build a community, you really, really need to think about how you're going to manage it. It's a, it's a big job. If you're, you know, there's moderation. One, one time I didn't moderate Take Kids for three days. I came back and there were 18,000 bits of content to check through and it's just me. So when you're building a community, think about what's gonna happen when people start using it and how you're going to meet their needs because you can't just leave it for a week because they won't come back. Okay, so uh, to sum up then, I think I better sum up. Uh, point one, your audience is everything. Two, your institution or your brand guidelines are your guide. Three, collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. Four, game on and be playful. And five, think hard about your community. That's me. Thanks. Thanks, Charlotte. Now, hang on before you go. <laughs> See, that's I found that really helpful. I'm not sorry, it was, because it's I a bit rattly. But. No, 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 I thought it was great. Not least because <laughs> I, I, I remember doing those multiple exclamation marks, exclamation marks myself, <laughs> and then getting burned, and someone had to come and quietly... Um, <laughs> remind me I was over 30, so that's um, good. Um, I feel really bad for hurrying you, and I'm sure that's prompted lots of questions, but have you written any of that down? Because I, I feel like I ought to press you for a blog post or something <laughs> like that, that you should uh, have on Tate, Tate Online or something. Uh, thanks. Um, I might, I'll, I'll, write, I'll write it up. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank uh, you. So that's a public commitment. Thank, thank you. <laughs> so our next speaker um, is uh, Amra Kennedy. Amra. Hello. Right. I'm from Culture24. I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, what we do, and particularly around the research in digital that we do, because that's the prism through which all of my thinking about learning um, is through. And 
then talk, basically I'm going to get on my soapbox after that. John's asked me to be a little bit challenging, um, so I'm going to have a bit of a whinge. So Culture24 is um, a non-profit digital cultural publisher, core funding from the Arts Council. Um, we have a network of five and a half thousand venues, initially museums and galleries, but that's expanded out to other types of cultural venues. We gather information from them and about them and publish it on websites and share it with a range of other organizations, including the BBC, which is our sort of main data sharing partnership at the moment. But one of the key things we do, we have a team of journalists as well, and we try to put that content and editorial about that, those events, the venues, everything that's going on in your world and that you are offering to the public out to different types of culture lovers, children, teachers, a range of people. Now we had a website, we still have live, a website called Show Me for 7 to 11 year olds, which was very much my labor of love years ago. Show Me is on ice at the moment, but we learned a huge amount from that. Show Me showcased what the museums and gallery sector was producing for children um, for many years. It's still live, it's still attracting lots of traffic and hopefully funding allowing it will rise from the ashes um, again in a new form very soon. Um, so show me, show me was our key formal schools-based learning tool, it taught us a lot. Um, personally speaking, I'm, very, I'm absolutely passionate about getting museums content used by children and by families and in schools. I'm a trustee of Kids in Museums and the Group for Education in Museums and now a school governor, which is a bit scary but gives a good insight and they don't tell you how much time it takes up. Um, so everything that I'm going to say is rooted very much in the practicalities and I really feel strongly that the practicalities of how children and, well, learners of all ages, but particularly children and teenagers, really use our stuff, or more importantly, why they don't use our stuff. Most of them don't, or not in any, not in um, enough numbers, and not in a way that is really embedded in their learning in the way that it could be. So, um, Culture24, in terms of research, some of you might have seen our Let's Get Real report. Um, where That was Let's Get Real 1, published last year. 24 organizations, some of whom are in this room, Tate were partners. Um, and that basically asked, who cares? Who's looking at our stuff? How do they find it? Who are they? Where are they? What do they do? It looked at popularity versus engagement. Tried to look at who's not looking at our stuff, but that was quite ambitious, and why not? Looked at social media and <coughs> did some very basic but much needed work around Google Analytics, just benchmarking what these 24 organizations were doing with Google Analytics, sharing segments between us, trying to get an idea of what our audiences were doing. And that's something that hopefully we're now in phase two, with some of the same and some new organizations, we're going to look at mobile, carry on looking at the analytics, but also we're really trying to drill down through doing shared surveys across everybody's sites that are linked to the Google Analytics accounts. We're trying to look at 
um, user motivations and then the reality of what they actually do. So the difference between what people say they've come to do on your website and what they actually do on your website, as far as we can with the tools available. Um, and the collections part of it brings me into my soapbox because we're going to look, as part of that phase two, we're trying to look at the different behavior around what users do with collection records as opposed to your how to find us, your visitor pages, your tickets that side of things. So digital collections, I feel very strongly are, they are just such a massive opportunity for the schools sector in particular, for adult learners as well, but for the schools sector, having been lucky enough to work at Culture24 now for 11 years, I'm still having the same conversations with people I was having 11 years ago. John, sitting here in front of me, remembers. He used to work with us. It's the same conversations, and it's so frustrating that we haven't cracked this yet, because we've got this incredible wealth of knowledge and evidence and source material and inspiration out there, and it's still siloed. It's available online, but it's siloed. We're not, as institutions, even linking to each other around subject themes, if you try and navigate from a collection object and try to follow a thread of a subject, I can't do that. You know, that's really difficult for me and I know our digital content inside out. And imagine an 11-year-old trying to do that. So we have all of this incredible material. Teachers and children don't know it's there. It's not visible when you do a Google image search. It's and it's more than that. It's not just about not knowing it's there and not knowing what to do with it. It's about trying to get it embedded within the behaviours in the classroom through teachers. Teachers, in an ideal world, we're getting straight to the children, but teachers are a conduit to the children and parents. And we need to somehow come together to support them to know that we're here what to do with the stuff when we find it, and to allow exploration around subject themes rather than by institution, an institutional brand. Okay. I'll stop. Thank you very much. Hi. Um, I work at the uh, London Knowledge Lab, which is a collaboration between uh, the Institute of Education and Birkbeck Department of Computer Science. So it's supposed to be computer scientists and educationists talking about digital technologies and how they might be used in education. Um, my research centre is called DARE, as John said, Digital Arts Research Education, and it involves collaboration with a number of uh, creative industry partners and also institutions, the British Library, uh, the BFI, um, the globe recently, and so on. So um, that kind of triad of cultural institution, university partner, and uh, industry, I'm kind of familiar with and interested in. I get the impression that we're supposed to say kind of provocative and challenging things today, so I'll, I'll try and say a few of those. The first thing I would like to say, um, <laughs> from my long experience of teaching and working with digital media, is that I think there's a problem with the idea of learning through digital media. Um, I was talking recently to the um, MA students in museums and galleries education at the Institute. I was talking about computer games. Um, 
And I said to them, the problem about games is it's a little bit as if somebody had come to you and said, oh, we hear, as if the software industry came and said, we hear you've got this great thing called art. And um, we think it will be a fantastic way of teaching physics and geography and, um, and citizenship and uh, you know, all those other really difficult things that are so boring. Yeah, let's use art as a kind of mechanism for teaching all those things. It'll be so motivating and so kind of creative. You know? And that's kind of what people are doing with the digital arts in education at the moment. That's what most of the debates are about. Now, I think there is a place for learning through games and through simulation and through digital media, but really, effective learning doesn't happen because of digital technologies. It happens because of effective pedagogy. And I think a much bigger case is the case to be made for how the digital arts can become part of the curriculum effectively. If children, have, you know, if children are learning about dance and art and drama and music, well, why can't they learn about film? We're still making that case, and film is 100 years old now. How many years will it take for us to make a case for learning about digital games, possibly the art form of the 21st century? So I think there's a case to be made there. The second point I want to make is about, um, you know, it's about heritage collections. We did this project, as I said, with the Globe recently, which was making computer games based on Macbeth. And the thing I always worry about with the heritage collections is what happens when they come into kind of violent collision with popular culture, which is kind of what happens when you think, how might I make a computer game out of Shakespeare? You know, the kids want to have 500 stormtroopers who are, whose mission is to kill Prospero. And there is a kind of sense in that. You can find some legitimation for it in the text, but it's, uh, you know, you've got to work your way around it a little bit. So I think you know, the heritage industries, the, the museums and galleries uh, and uh, theatres and concert halls sector have to be a little bit kind of um, ambitious and prepared to take risks about what will happen when these cherished kind of parts of our national culture become grist for the mill of popular cultural forms in the experience of young people, and we have to work with that. I think that's a good thing, not a dangerous thing, but it does involve taking risks. And the third thing I want to say is that these digital media have very specific affordances when it comes to using them in these um, contexts. And I just want to give three examples from my own recent projects. Uh, the first one, as, I, as, as I've said, is making a Macbeth game with the globe. And the specific thing about that is that games help you to think uh, differently about Shakespeare. To think about a Shakespeare play as if it were a game. And many of the plays have quite kind of pronounced ludic structures. They're quite game-like. Midsummer Night's Dream is an obvious example. The Tempest is an obvious example. Macbeth worked pretty well as a game we discovered as well. His mission clearly was to kill Duncan. And uh, there were various things in the way. And uh, uh, Lady Macbeth was urging him on. Um, but the game had specific affordances and it helped them to think analytically, creatively, even metaphorically about the play in a different way. That was one of the, po the possibilities digital games offered. Uh, a second project we did recently was making machinima films in Cambridge with an uh, um, industry partner called MovieStorm Limited, who made a 3D animation software for kids to make machinima films, which, if you haven't come across them, are films which developed out of the 3D worlds of virtual worlds and um, computer games. And the point there is you can make films with them. You can learn traditional uh, filmmaking skills, the grammar of film, which, as I've said, goes back 100 years and which is an important thing for us to teach. There is a connection with the past there. It's not all about the new. Um, but they also offer something different. Uh, 
the world of machinima wouldn't have been possible without the virtual worlds and the avatar-based dramatic interactions of computer games and virtual worlds. So there's something quite specific about that form which derives from digital culture. Uh, the third project I want to mention is the one we did recently with the British Library on children's play, uh, digitizing the OP collection of children's games from the 1950s to 80s. Uh, in the National Sound Archive. And we developed a website there which is called Playtimes. If you just Google Playtimes, you'll find it at the British Library. And the principle there was for the children to co-curate the collection of, um, of games there. These were children from primary schools in Sheffield and London um, who were partners in the project. So these kind of six to 11-year-old groups of children from the schools became co-curators of the collection. And what exactly that meant, it's a difficult concept and it's very easy to run into kind of horrible forms of tokenism when you treat children as co-curators in museums, galleries, libraries, and so on. And we probably didn't completely escape that ourselves, I'm well aware. But something about the form of a website and the ability of children to make digital media, in this case animations, to introduce uh, visitors to the site, to the collections of games, and to put their own interpretation on those collections was an affordance of digital media, digital animation, and in this case, the, the, the whole um, structure of a website. So I think that's my message. Look for the specific affordances of digital media to deal with material which is often hundreds of years old, uh, you know, if not more. Um, there's a connection with the past here, and it's the specific affordance of the digital we want to look for, rather than treating it as a kind of fairy dust, which we sprinkle liberally over all the stuff that's difficult and boring. Thanks very much. <clears throat> Thanks, Andrew. Um, one of the things that always strikes me when we talk about education and learning, uh, as our sort of three speakers have, have um, demonstrated, this is an amazingly broad topic. You know, are we talking about reaching out to kids uh, using digital because that's where they are and that we can't reach them other ways? Are we talking about flipping learning on its head so that we're, you know, we find better ways to learn? Are we talking about augmenting and providing additional access to, to the curriculum in schools? Are we talking about continued professional development and lifelong learning? And it's just such a huge topic that, in theory, we could have run a whole £7 million digital arts R&D uh, fund on education and learning in itself. So it's an amazingly broad... <laughs> talk, talk to our colleagues in the Arts Council. Uh, so, so, so it is just a hugely broad area. Um, just before I ask you to do it, you guys to do a little bit of work, are there any sort of burning questions for any of the three speakers? Right? Yeah, there's one at the front. Clara, Clara, are you with the mic? Thanks. And if you could just say who you are and, yeah. and be brief, please. Thank you. I'm Tom Jordan from Interplay. Um, it's for Andrew directly, actually. In, it's a little bit technical. In terms of um, the Macbeth game, what platforms were you working on and sort of what technologies, as in, was it web-based or was it, was it more sort of PC? It was, right? uh, it, thanks, yeah, I, I should have said that. It was a, it's a game authoring tool called Mission Maker, which we developed with a company called Immersive Education a while ago with, under, with an ESRC grant. Uh, it's a bit like a level editor in, you know, game production practice, so you get a tile editor and you get a kind of uh, what we call the rule editor in which they can program every event in a, in a simple high-level programming language. I should say the company went into receivership just before Christmas, actually, and uh, the Institute of Education have now acquired the assets and IP 
of the company. So we're going to be developing those products from now on. Um, so it gives us a real chance to get to grips with both sides of the R&D um, equation. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I've, I've got one question. And it's a question for Shana. Shana, the first one of your five things was know your audience. And in the previous session, Paul, who's still with us here, was talking about his educational project and how do you understand what kids want. And I just wonder, how, do you, how does the take go about understanding its audience? Do you do your own research? Do you seek public research that's available? Uh, we, do, we, do, we do a blend. So we have um, an audience insight manager who sits in our marketing team. Um, and we also have a, a sort of analytics, digital analytics expert who sits in Tate Online. So we, we, we take those. And we also keep up to date with trends. And well, I personally like to know what kids are up to who they're talking about and you can see a lot of it in the back end of our community when I'm moderating content and comments mm. you get a flavor of what they're looking at at the moment okay so so if you if you don't have your own audience insight manager if you're a small organization yeah. what tips would you have for where you can uh, uh, aside from looking at the messages that are coming yeah, um, in it, it's gonna sound quite trite but you know just be aware Google Get, get onto Twitter, fo follow relevant people who are doing research. There are companies like uh, Dubit and um, Kids Industry Digital. There are lots of people doing research about children and where they are. Um, there was a company called um, Doco Digital Outlook. They do lots of insights. A lot of these things are um, insights for the commercial sector and, and, and the Sonys and the Xboxes, but the, the feedback that you get is still very... Um, applicable to us. Okay. Can I, chip, sure. can I just chip in really quickly? Because I've one of the things I know that this doesn't give you the numbers, but in terms of focused um, feedback, every single school, but not only school, but youth club, community group, brownie troop that I've ever approached about forming um, focus groups and ongoing panels of children, they've all just been desperate to be involved. They love being involved with anything to do with museums and galleries. They're very generous with their time. So and you're saying go out, really go out and do your own. Even though yeah. they're small groups of children, and of course you can't rely on everything, but they give you such insight and Great. there's such a willingness to talk and be involved. That's a good tip. So we're running short of time. In the next five minutes, I would like you to talk to the people next to you, in front of you, behind you, and just ask each other uh, one very simple question, which is, what's the biggest opportunity for your organization in this vastly broad realm of education and learning? Um, and I'm going to be asking you to feedback in five minutes. So start talking amongst yourselves, please. Thank you. Thank you minutes and we've got about five minutes before it's lunchtime so we're on the last leg before lunchtime does anyone want to be brave and just put up their hand and tell the room what they've been talking about and if they just mention their name first come on it's five minutes to go before lunch there's one here Clara thank you so we asked you to discuss what you felt the biggest opportunity was in education and learning for your organization. I'm Chris Allen from Liverpool Philharmonic. Uh, one of the things that I feel quite strongly about is, is the way that we can use technology to engage children, not just to engage children, but to, to engage their families and, and the wider community and, 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 and how that might, uh, you know, we, we, we concentrate so much in getting children through our doors to, to hear classical music, 
perhaps we don't follow up uh, so much uh, when they get out, and we could use a, you know, even, even kids who've got access to mobile phones, that kind of thing might be useful in the future. Yeah, yeah. and Chris, have you, have you seen that done very well, either with arts or cultural organisations or else, elsewhere? Uh, no. No. <laughs> it's, it's in, it's in, a long time ago, I, I went for the BBC, and BBC Jam was, you know, the, the, the much... Um, kind of lamented BBC Jam had this principle that it was really after um, encouraging education outside of school and a lot of that was targeted towards working with children and parents and I think it's, um, you know, it was a shame that it got canned but it was a sort of honor honourable pursuit. There's, down here. Can you, can you say who you are as well? Sorry, Sorry. Uh, I'm um, Tom Doust, I'm a Nesta Claw Social Fellow uh, a Royal Historic Palaces have just done a, a project with iPads and technology and families and children, which has been quite interesting. And can I just Follow jump in with um, uh, an agency called Magnet Magnetic North, I don't know if they're here today. They did a really good thing um, with Connect, uh, where, where children could uh, conduct an orchestra and speed it up and slow it down. And that was a really, really lovely interactivity. Again, it was for use in a space, so it wasn't outreach but it was still a lovely thing to do and I'm sure there's something that could be done online that will reach kids who would never have thought of coming to your institution but will feel much warmer to it once they've experienced the content. Thank you. Uh, anyone else? Was there a, Tom did you have something to say? Or? Tom Jordan again from Interplay um, and it was, it was mainly the biggest opportunity for us is something that that we create generally, which is quite siloed in schools or, or in-house, um, and being able to distribute that and, and our reach really being extended um, infinitely across the world. Um, and how, with digital technology and education, taking what we use as a physical interaction and putting that into a, a digital one is, is a boundary that we face, but I think if we can overcome that, then it, it becomes um, less expensive to, to enjoy physical arts um, in education and, and also um, much wider reaching. Thank you. Okay, there's a comment here from Stephen. Thank you. Uh, Stephen Green, Dystrophy, as you know. Um, I was just talking with my colleagues Anna and Maya here behind me and it's just a very brief point that we all agreed on that it's very important to understand the value of what you're doing and what you're making and also that that should be reflected when it goes onto the, the internet um, and distribution. Especially with education, high price points are uh, important. People are willing to pay for good quality material, particularly educational materials. And I think there's perhaps a perception in some areas that the internet is a place where you get things for free. And in my experience from content distribution, people are really willing to pay good money for good quality uh, content. Yeah, yeah. Just on that point, I mean, I, I don't know, but I wonder whether anyone in the room knows. Does, you know, when I th I've got a three-and-a-half-year-old, and when I think about um, sort of helping him to teach, occasionally I download apps. Anyone with kids just sort of download and pay for apps? So a few of you. I mean, does, does Stephen, do, do you think that signals that there's a... <laughs> A, a paid-for app model? Should we suddenly... I mean, I know there are hundreds of thousands of apps, but is that an opportunity for matching the funding with the educational purposes? 
I think very much so, certainly from our experience. We do work with providers of educational materials for children, and particularly language services. And we've found that whether it's through an app or through another mechanism, such as a website or our own um, shareable technology, the opportunities for monetization are very strong. Um, even, let's say, just one example, half our educational material for uh, language learning can sell for over 50 pounds. Oh, yeah. um, wow. So it really demonstrates that there's a, a real hunger for good educational material. And um, I think some of us here have experiences of underselling our work, and it's something to be very alert. Okay, to. good. And I think, John, you just want to briefly, if you may, please. Uh, John Pratty from the Arts Council. We're aware of some fantastic research just carried out and published by Nesta called Decoding Learning, which is really, really worth having a look at. A report published in November or December yeah. Yeah. Uh, by four particular researchers, one of which Professor Rose Luckin is based in our hometown, Brighton. Um, Decoding Learning proposes that it would be great if there were forums or groups of educators, developers, cultural people, uh, and, and people from local authority environment, I guess, too, who are getting together in more purposeful, muscular ways to actually share ideas and talk about stuff that's going on in particular places. In Brighton, we've been lucky to have the first one of these called Digital Education Brighton. And it's been a really useful thing because teachers are getting together and talking about stuff that they actually use in the classroom. And sharing why stuff is really useful and tools that work in really useful ways, usually free tools. So let's not forget that teachers are really useful people to plug into here. And as Anna was suggesting, if museums and galleries and cultural spaces aren't necessarily in touch with these forums, it would be a great idea either to start one or to do some re research and find out if there are groupings of teachers involved in digital in your area. And hopefully decoding learning will actually result in the creation of some of these forums. Thanks, John. It's always really nice when a funding partner gives you, your organisation a plug, so thank you for that. <laughs> uh, um, you've just got one last, if I could just ask you to be very brief, please. It's two words, uh, teach, meet, if you've heard of it. Um, yeah. It's a groundswell of teachers beginning to share their knowledge, and it's quite exciting. So Brilliant. Google it. That's really helpful. Thank you. So uh, we've, we've. Uh, John, sorry, can I just make yeah. one very final yeah. point? I was just reminded by by John's point. That there is a danger, I think, that we're facing of a kind of new, um, you know, divide of the kind C.P. Snow identified half a century ago between the arts and the sciences. If um, computer science in schools becomes another form of advanced maths, as it seems likely to do under the uh, present sort of um, government then it will have no connection with the arts. And 95% of kids will die of boredom before they get to, uh, uh, you know, get to work in the creative industries, which is one of the alleged purposes of this. So unless the school curriculum can make an alliance between computer science and the new programming in schools, whatever that looks like, and the purposes for that program, programming, one of which is the creative industries and the arts in education, then that's what we're facing again, I think. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, good point. Uh, so we've reached the end. All I've got to ask you to do, really, before you can have some lunch, is to thank our speakers. Brilliant. Uh, um, uh, thank you.